I'm Ye Vang, and you're listening to Monglish. Monglish is a podcast that explores the intersection of Hmong and American culture. I spent my entire life processing what it means to be Hmong American, and with this show, I hope to dive even deeper. It's my goal to create a space to explore my dual heritage while educating the populace on Hmong culture with the help of guests and other members of our community. Hey folks, this is Matt Gundrum, producer from Unglish. This episode is a recording of our September 19th live show in Minneapolis in partnership with Spam. We are so grateful to all the folks at Spam and Hormel who supported this event. Everyone in attendance was treated to goodie bags and delicious appetizers, which came in the form of Spam fried rice and Spam masubi, both of which, I might add, were made with their new maple flavor. Our host, Chef Yevang, spoke with Los Angeles-based writer Philippe Tao about his experiences growing up as a Hmong kid and how queerness plays a role in Hmong culture. Philippe works at Netflix and is very much immersed in the world of media. But how does he retain his Hmongness? How does he value his heritage? Trust me, you'll want to hear the whole thing. It's a fascinating conversation. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review. Also, be sure to find us on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at MunglishPod. Okay, here's the second edition of Munglish Live. Enjoy. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I started looking at your Instagram. I'm like, this kid's too cool. Like, <laughs> like he's too cool to talk to me. So I remember the first time I, I think I DM'd him. I'm like, sub, like, you know, like, what, what, what do you? Yeah, you're cool, man. Uh, so, so I just, I just felt like I, I just saw like uh, art, fashion, the things that like you would put up a post or something in your story, and I'm like. Maybe I'm just too old, but I don't get it. But man, I think it's cool. Like I don't know. Like you, you put up a picture or something, and I'm like, that's cool. I think, you know. And um, and we became, I, I call it, uh, we became a social media friend, friends. And uh, when we when we were saying, hey, we want to do a second one, I'm like, you know what? What if we can get you to come back um, from LA, uh, and Philippe to come back from LA and sit down and we can talk? And there's so much about your story that I want to unravel. Um, and I, I really truly believe that uh, people want to, you know, hear and everything. Um, but do you know what, Matt? We should try to edit this part because I totally messed it up. But hey, but today we are sponsored by Spam. <laughs> This is the part where your producer, please edit. Um, but yeah, we, I, a couple years ago, uh, Hormel asked us to go down to Austin, Minnesota, the home of Spam. And they did this big event called North by Northwest. And what we did was we, they, the Spam, by the way, guys, um, Hormel has their own private airport on there. And uh, they, and they have a hangar and we turned that hangar into the 
uh, into kind of this food, this big food, you know, kind of market thing. And we had a bunch of chefs from up here go down, and I got to know the, uh, the Hormel and the Spam team really well. And um, when you drive into Austin, Minnesota, it smells like roast pork. I'm not going to lie. It smells amazing. And growing up, what we would do is we would take spam and we would chop it up and we might uh, 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 you know and we turn it and we mix it with fried rice. But my favorite thing is just like spam stir fried up with a little bit of cabbage and put it over some rice and local tzal. Like, right? That's Hmong food, right? And so we became friends uh, with them and we, you know, reached out to them and said, hey, we would love to do like a little collab and they were able to do that. Their maple flavor is their brand new flavor that they're putting out. So you might have had that in the Spam Masubi with the purple sticky rice. And then we did a Spam fried rice in the back there. And then, yeah, and then we got, you guys got your swag bags with all, a little bit of some Spam in there. So, you know, take it home, try it out. There's stickers in there you can put wherever you want. But yeah, today's episode is sponsored by Spam. <laughs> okay, okay, editor. You have to say that, now the check will bear. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. We got bills to pay, man. But anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> so anyways, hey, so, but I am, I'm really excited, Philippe. So um, I actually don't know a lot about you, so that's why I feel like this is gonna be a great time. No, thanks, so, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited, mm -hmm. a little nervous, but I'm down to get to it. So what I do know about you is you're a writer, uh, you work in the media world, uh, so this is right up your alley, you know, um, you know, being, being up front, you know, in front of everybody. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, that's uh, pretty much, you know, we've talked about that, but, you know, one of the things I really see you doing is um, you're leading, I would say that there's this young group of Hmong kids, you know, that are, are coming up, and I, I see you as one of those forefront leaders of it. Um, there, there was this thing that um, I saw when uh, Suni Lee won the, um, the Olympics, and uh, there was a research that was done, or you know, Google, Google knows everything. Uh, apparently, the most researched phrase right after Suni won uh, the, the gold was, what is Hmong? Mm -hmm. All around the world, everybody was typing on that either computer, what is Hmong? You know, because they yeah. kept saying she's Hmong, she's Hmong, and everyone thought she was Chinese. You know, mm -hmm. Chinese American, and they're saying she's Hmong American, and it was what is Hmong? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that when I think of that, I think of like um, I think of young people like you guys. You know, that are coming up, that are doing amazing things, that are you know changing the way that uh, n not just our country but our world is viewing. Like who are who are the Hmong people? Like, and going into research and finding out like. Oh, they're this refugee group from the mountains of Laos area, and but to see how far we've come, right? Well, I think for me, it's also like um, I think growing up Hmong American, we always have this script in our head where people ask you what is Hmong, and then you memorize the history lesson. Yep. You tell them, you know, from China, the Vietnam it's like War. It's an elevator pitch. You exactly. almost give them, a, yeah. And so for me, I've the older I get, I have to almost like reshape my thinking of, mm. yeah, it's helpful to include that context when I talk to people about what is Hmong, but it's also like, what does Hmong mean to me right now? What does Hmong mean in 2023? What does Hmong mean after someone like Suni Lee um, or Brenda Song, right? And so it's like important to teach the history, but our history doesn't stop or end with that, right? Um, and so at least for me, what I, a lot of what I try to do when I write or in my work is kind of grapple with that question. And I don't have the answer, but I think that's what's really fun for me about being Hmong American is um, toggling in between those different identities and like finding creative ways to explain who you are and express your, your ethnicity. 
So, le, le, like, I'm just going to back up. Mm-hmm. How did you get to where you are? Like, job-wise? Sure. Because <laughs> um, you live in that big city called L.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it just like the TV that we watch? I mean, I say L.A. is not a real place because... Um, <laughs> Some days uh, you'll just be at a restaurant and then like Steven Yeun is having dinner right next to you. But um, do, do you go over and like poke him? No. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're just like one of these and he's like, oh, you're real. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sometimes. But um, I mean, growing up, I always loved pop culture and like movies and TV. And when I was little, I really wanted to be an actor like so bad. Um, and so my parents put us through sports and me and my older brother were always like competing against each other. But it wasn't really a competition because I just was not good at sports. And so uh, when I was younger, I like found my way into acting and grew up doing theater up until high school. But um, when I was in eighth grade, I was like, you know what? I really, really want to be an actor like on the big screen. And so my mom took me to this random talent showcase where a bunch of like agents come to Minneapolis and you walk the catwalk and like perform a monologue and see if you what get was your signed. Monologue? Oh my god, it was so Goonies, bad. Please be the I don't Goonies. remember it, but I think it was like some awkward teenager who was like home alone without going, like on a Friday night when there was like a school Dude, that's party. Just, that's called being mom kid. That's just you're like right. you're like I really need to get in character. Okay, Method Friday acting. night, mom and dad love. We have to make fried rice with eggs. I'm in scene. Method acting right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so like through that, I met this acting coach in LA, and he was like, "I'm only bringing five kids here to LA to train with me," and I was one of them. So. Um, I had never been to LA or California before, and so me and my mom flew out to LA one summer and like trained with him. And I remember like her and I were just walking down the Walk of Fame, and like it was just it's like so inspiring to me being a little moan kid, right, from rural Wisconsin. Um, and obviously nothing happened after that. Like I think I just got sucked into school and like had to figure out who I was, like my sexuality, and what I actually wanted. Um, Because you know when you're in 8th grade, you don't know what you want. Yeah, Um, yeah, most people after 8th grade, college, they're still doing that. Yeah. (laughs) And so, like, you know, like, through college, I studied advertising. I found my love for writing. Um, Did you go to school at the U here? No, I went to school at DePaul University in Chicago. So I lived... Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Blue Demons. (laughs) Uh, So I lived there for six years, studied advertising, and then after college, you know, became a copywriter at Crate & Barrel Furniture Company. So... I wrote about rugs, sofas, um, Exciting. plates. <laughs> I know way too much about you know setting the table. Um, but yeah, COVID happened. I moved back home, and then uh, before I got my job at Crane Barrel, I was interviewing for like magazine jobs in New York. And someone who interviewed me, uh, kind of, she kept me in mind. And so she randomly one day got a message on LinkedIn, and she's like, "Hey, it's been a few years. I." just moved over to Netflix, you want to come work on my team? And I thought it was spam at first, and so yes, I... because when you get those emails, okay, I'm going to be real honest, when you get those emails, you're just like, nah, this is the Nigerian Prince scam. Like, <laughs> send $5,000 and then we'll have somebody call you, right. you know? And, and also, to, to be completely honest, coming from where we come from, it's like, no. Like, right. how did you find my email, right. you know? I mean, like, I was just chilling. Panda 38 you know, at Hotmail. How did you find that? <laughs> no, <just kidding. laughs> I mean, I was just like 25 years old living in my parents' basement, yeah. and this random message pops up. Yeah. Um, but so, and then, uh, so that's how I kind of moved over to Netflix, and we, basically what I do is, I work in editorial, and so it's basically like doing magazine work, but for Netflix on our website. So I uh, write articles about our TV shows, do cast interviews, kind of create behind the scenes content um, 
for our series. But so when I moved to LA last year, it kind of became this full circle moment of like mm -hmm. the first time I was here, I was in eighth grade with my mom and I really wanted to work in this industry some way, somehow. And so it just felt very full circle to, to be there now. And I mean, I'm not an actor, but like to kind of be working in the entertainment field and like writing about pop culture and things that I love. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the long yeah, story no, of how no, I ended up perfect. there. What, what, um, tell me about your favorite thing that you do for your job. Like, what's your favorite thing? Ooh. Uh, watching TV. <laughs> um, You're like I, every monkey's dream. Wait, you get paid to watch TV? Yeah, Pretty so much. like, yeah. thankfully I have two monitors. So one monitor, I always have like something I have to watch, like huh. binge watching a show. And then huh. the other one is like my Google Docs where I have writing notes or whatnot. Yeah. Um, that's fun, but I think the other one is I'm very introverted and shy, and I think it's really pushed me to learn how to talk to people, especially like celebrities. That mm -hmm. uh, like my first red carpet, I had to talk to Snoop Dogg, and he only had like <laughs> 10 seconds, and they're like, they're like you have to flag him down right now or else. And every reporter is trying to be like Snoop, Snoop, but I got my 10 seconds with him. Um, what did you, what'd you ask him? Where? Honestly, I don't remember. It, it was like a blur. <laughs> but like, I think it's kind of the the fun part of that. It's it's really forced me to go out of my shell and just like learn how to have a conversation, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been fun. Okay, so just kinda, I don't know, I'm just curious now. Like, what show should I be watching on Netflix right now? Do you, uh, have you seen One Piece? No, so, my nephews watch it all the time and I don't get it because I'm not into it. So, and so I'm like, why is he stretchy? What? Like, yeah, what's, yeah. who is she? And then my nephew was like 10, like explain, goes, oh, okay, I'm gonna so what happened? And so it's like a pirate and I'm like, Dude, I feel like a kid wrote the show, you know? Like, so I had never seen One Piece before because it's been a, like a manga and an anime since like the yep. 90s. So I had to watch the live action show for work and I'm like, I don't really get this, so let me go back and watch the anime. Uh, and now I'm like fully invested in it. But um, the cool thing is the creator of One Piece, he's like this Japanese guy who doesn't like to be photographed, no one knows anything about him. And then one day they're like, Philippe, he's in the office, go interview him. And it felt kind of illegal to be like sitting across the table from him and seeing his face. And it's like me. Was there like a, like a bag no, over his face? He was okay. just like in a t-shirt, like sitting across from me and like me, him, the Japanese interpreter and like five other Japanese people. And then just me. And I'm and like, you're interviewing him. Yeah. And I'm like, this feels illegal. Like, I don't think I should be seeing your face, but um, he's, he was really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's amazing. So, you know, I, I think that one of the things I heard right away when you're telling about your story is right away, you're like, this is what I want to do. Like, what was that inspiration for you to do it? Because can I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you from, from me, like just even listening to you, I felt like I grew up totally the opposite. You know, like with someone, like growing up, I was like very shy, you know, and I, I was growing up too. I always, so this, Somebody jokingly told me the other day, or I don't know if it's a joke or not, goes, you know, people, they don't go to therapy. They just start a podcast. I'm like, no, it's not. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I say some things on there. I'm like, I haven't said before. But this is one thing. Whereas I remember as a kid growing up, there was a, a, a bunch of kids, and, and, and then this, I thought he was my friend. His name is Scott. I don't know where you are, Scott. It's been like 30-some years, but whatever. And, and he was, Scott was having a birthday party, right? And I was so excited with my friends because I was like, yeah, like we were in elementary school. I was maybe like second, third grade. I'm like, yeah, we're going to like go to Scott's birthday party. It's going to be so fun. Yeah, yeah. And I was like super excited. 
And I remember Scott like was like, looked at him and goes, you're not coming to my birthday party. And you know, and I'm like, wait, what? And I was like the only one that didn't get an invite. And I, rem- I remember that shaped me, even though that was like 30 some years ago, like I still think about that sometimes. It's weird, I know, okay. But, but that, what that really did to me on that day was it made me feel like I would never put myself in a situation where, um, uh, like where I don't know, like like I'm the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And I'm yeah. laughing. I'm like, oh yeah, everyone's cool. And then you you feel like, oh shoot, I was never invited. I was never part of it. Mm-hmm. So that really shaped how I grew up, and that shaped my understanding of you know my childhood growing up, where it's like you don't you don't dream, mm-hmm. you don't you don't pursue stuff. Mm-hmm. Like maybe if you're lucky enough, it'll come to you, but you don't want to try and then you know be then the laughing stock. So there was that part of me. Which uh, seems like kind of like the 180 reverse for you. So I, I'm just asking, I want to ask, like, where did you find that where it's like, I can go, I can dream, I can do this? I mean, honestly, it came from my parents because like growing up, they really invested a lot of time into making sure that me and my brothers were involved in activities, but they weren't, even though they like made me do sports early on, they were always very adamant on like, find what you're good at and explore that. And so when I was really into theater, they would, I was the one like would, that would look up all these auditions and my mom's like, find the auditions and I'll drive you there. And so like a lot of my childhood memories are just being at rehearsals till 9, 10 p.m., my parents waiting on the street to pick me up, driving like 30 minutes back home to Wisconsin, right? And so I think that really instilled this sense in me where it's like I can do, if I have a goal or an ambition, my parents are always going to support me in that way. Um, and the other part of that too was like the, to, to your point about being the laughing stock, um, like growing up in rural Wisconsin and like being the only, like some of the only Hmong people, that did kind of mess with my sense of identity and my Hmongness. But uh, I was really grateful that you know me and my brothers grew up in Boy Scouts, and every time we went on camping trips, my mom would always bring the uh, the what was it the bamboo. The mumblow thing. The mumblow thing, yeah, yeah with, yeah, with sticky rice, and oh, yeah. all the white people really loved it. And so every camping trip, <laughs> they were like, "Is your mom making sticky rice?" Yeah. Um, At that point, those white people were like, "Oh, cool." And then when they got older, they're like, "Let me tell you about sticky rice." Like, right? But whatever. Think, so, like, you know, like a lot of Asian people have that stinky lunchbox story, but I never did because I just was never ashamed of eating our food um, around other white folks, and even like. In the neighborhood, there was this white girl that I was friends with who lived down the street, and she would always come over to play, and then she would just eat Hmong dinner with us every day. Um, and so for me, I just was never like ashamed of the food, yeah. and, the, and that really instilled this sense of pride in who I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, what about when you went on these auditions and stuff like that? Were they looking for like the Asian kid or whatever? Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, if anything, yeah. that kind of like messed around more with my sense of identity, yeah. right? A lot of these roles are not, it's like if like, you're Asian, like you're, you're towns- a part of Billy. You know, right, like, townsperson okay. number three. Yeah. Or, um, but actually one turning point was me, for me was when I was in seventh grade, this local theater called Stepping Stone Theater, they did this play called Tiger Tales and it was this Hmong play about this Hmong family in St. Paul and their kids mm-hmm. are really naughty and so their grandma tells them, uh, traditional Hmong folk tales, and the kids kind of like transport into these folk tales and become the characters. Um, so I auditioned for it, and I was like one of the main kids, and it was like the first time on stage where I was like playing like myself, and um, like I was so familiar with the story. Um, and the best part of it was I got to miss a month of school. Mm. Uh, Child actor issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think that was a moment for me where it was like, 
it's really important for us to tell our own stories, whether it's on stage, whether you write, whether you act, or even like cook, right? Like you can find storytelling in different mediums. And so like when you're the one who's in that driver's seat, you can really forge that own path for yourself. Um, so even though I don't do theater anymore, I think that play itself taught me like, you really are the writer of your own story, whatever that looks like. Yeah, well first, um, mom, dad, we're gonna have to get um, you know a, like a DVD of that play because I want to see it. Uh, but secondly, how how was it for you, man? Like going into that, you know, uh, going into that play, going into that, knowing that I get to play a monk kid. I'm not, you know, I'm not like playing a white kid as a monk kid pretending to be a white kid. Right. You know, how was that for you, man? It was really fun. Like we got to speak Hmong and oh really? Um, yeah, and I, also because we had lived in Wisconsin, I didn't really have any Hmong friends other than cousins, and so I met so many cool Hmong kids in the cast who had actually never done theater before, and we all kind of became this like little family, and we got to share a lot of our culture with people in the audience and like a lot of the people on the crew who weren't Hmong. Um, so it felt like this really special experience for everyone mm -hmm. who was involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it was one of those things like, um, you know, I, I think about like, as a kid growing up, I never just thought about representation, you know? Because mm. like, all the shows you watch, all the music you're, it's just, you know, it's, it's white people. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, you just think, well, that's just how it is, yeah. you know? But then the moment you see anybody who's just remotely looks like you, yeah. like even like, like a Chinese person, a Japanese person, you're just like, oh, and then you're like, you're so connected to it. There's just something inside of us, yeah. you know? And I think that there's this innate human thing to connect with things that look just like you, or people that look just like you. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's really cool seeing sometimes on Suni Lee's Instagram story, she's at Hmong Village, or she's yeah. like getting papaya salad, and it's like, she's just like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, she like misses her mom's, you know, quetzal and everything like that. It's like, yeah. I don't care if you're with Adidas, you know? <laughs> you eat just like us. Exactly. Yeah, um, so so you go from there, how, how did you get into, do you, did you, okay, so this is my question, sorry, I'm gonna think about it. Do you feel like you got this love for writing, or did it find you? Honestly, it's because I can't do math, and I'm not good oh, at me science. Me too, bro! <laughs> the kids used to cheat off on my paper, but I was looking at another kid's paper. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, like, I think it found me because I wasn't really good at anything else, but... um. Not in a self-deprecating way, but like my dad is a software engineer. He mm -hmm. teaches math. My older brother is really good at finances. My younger brother is really good at sciences. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, how, like, what am I good at? And I think um, I was always very expressive and dramatic as a kid. And I journaled a lot. Like I have a stack of journals from middle school being really emo. You need to read those too out loud. Oh, no. <laughs> by, by the way, surprise, we have one. No. Yeah, but I mean, it's not even, it wasn't even good writing. But I think that was when I like started writing a lot. And in high school, I had really good English teachers who like, were like, you should write more. Like, it's like a, like a skill that you have. And so I think that was the first time that I felt seen for my writing. And so um, that's kind of what led me to being a writer. Mm -hmm. When in, in the writing world there, was it about um, like fiction, fiction, nonfiction, creative? Like what, what area do you like, you know, go towards? Well, right now I, I obviously like write um, nonfiction yep. and like kind of journalism adjacent, but uh, what got me really into writing was screenwriting. And so after the acting thing didn't work out, I was like, I'm going to be a screenwriter. Uh, so my high school best friend, she was this Vietnamese girl, and she would always write these short stories. And then during school, she would give me her short stories, and I would rewrite them into screenplays. Uh, and so it was like I just always wrote these scripts. Um, some were really terrible. I think I wrote 
in one of my creative writing classes, I wrote this one-act play about this Hmong family living in Minnesota, and they move out to the suburbs, and their white neighbors, all of a sudden, their dogs go missing. And it was just, it was the satire about how, like, you know, like, white people joking about Asian people eating dogs. Um, but, like, the white people were the butt of the jokes, and... Um, at the end of this class, my teacher chose like two people to get their their scripts performed in front of the high school class, and my got my got chosen. Oh! Um, but um, but yeah, so like so I my first year of college, I'm like I'm gonna go for screenwriting, and so I was actually a TV writing major. Um, but you know when you're 18 and like you move to Chicago, you're surrounded by all these film bros who think they're gonna be the next Quentin Tarantino, yeah, 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 yeah. and I was like this 18 year old Mon guy who didn't even know who I was, what stories yep. I wanted to write. And so um, the screenwriting thing went out the door, but I still always really enjoyed writing. Yeah. Tell, tell me about the process of screenwriting. Like, you know, I hear that word all the time. Everyone talks about, you know, this is a screenwriter, blah, blah, blah. Like, is it just like writing a story? Or like, wh- wh- what's the process of it? You know, it's kind of like in our world when people are like, oh, you make a dish. And it's like, yeah, but there's a lot of components to it and a lot of things that go through, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I can remember from my, my one year of being a TV writing yeah. major, it was a lot of outlining, a lot of um, learning what, like, like, storyboarding, learning the different steps that go into making a story, like the climax, exposition, the conclusion. And I think for me, that kind of sucked the fun out of it for me because when I write, I just, like, like... You want to write. Want to write. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, damn, it's like a whole formula that you have to check yeah. off. So. There's, like a, there's, like, a technical aspect to it. Yeah, so it wasn't for me, but I respect the art. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So you know, you know, you were you were kind of talking about um, just uh, growing up, Hmong family, um, you know, um, love English writing. How do you like for you? Like, how do you live in this world now where it's like? Because if we're going to be honest, like the Hmong language itself is it's a primitive language. Mm-hmm. To, to be completely honest, like you know, and, and that's like no disrespect to it mm-hmm. at all. Like I'm Hmong, I speak Hmong. Okay, you know. How do you, like, what are your thoughts on kids today where they're, like, where speaking Hmong is not part of what they do, like Hmong kids, you know? Yeah. I feel like I have, a, like, a few different thoughts. I think, I mean, on one hand, it is kind of tragic when you're, when you feel like you're losing your native tongue because there are certain emotions and things you can express in Hmong that um, are really hard to express in English, right? Um, on the other hand, I also think your knowledge of your native tongue should not define like your Hmongness. And I feel like with like our generation, younger Hmong generations, like there's so much shame in not knowing your language. And, um, and that kind of dictates how Hmong you are. But when you think about it, it's like the reason why a lot of people are losing the Hmong language is like the history of war, the history of displacement, the history of diaspora. Um, we don't have our own country where it's widely spoken and I think we're lucky enough to live in a cultural bubble like the Twin Cities where you do have Hmong restaurants, Hmong signs, Hmong billboards but that's not the case everywhere right and so I don't put any blame on people who can't speak their language doesn't make them any more or less Hmong Um, like my Hmong I feel like it's like slipping all the time right Uh, but I still try to take immense pride in my my culture Um, so if you can speak Hmong that's great if you can't that's also great yeah so do, do, uh, what, where, okay, so if we go a scale of like zero to like to ten, where do you fall, where do you think you fall in there? Because I know where I fall. And I, know, I mean, and, and your parents are watching you too. So, so like, if I <laughs> if I have to go and like court someone in the Hmong language using like poetic oh, dude, terminology, are you good at that? no, I can't do that. Oh. But 
I did do that once when we were in Thailand visiting. How'd it go? Oh no! So we were in Thailand visiting family, and my auntie is like, "Oh, are you single?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And she's like, "There's this Hmong girl next door. You should go talk to her." <laughs> so she walks me through the village. Oh, dude, this is awesome. Keep going. I love and, this. And um. Like, you know the Hmong movies? Like, you're sitting, oh. like, the mother's outside, like, oh. sewing, the grandma's up to the side. I feel doing... like you're a screenwriter, yes. Yeah, like, the story. I, going I can through see, the I rice. You're storyboarding this, yep, yep. And then my auntie's like, oh, the girl that we wanted you to talk to is not here, but her sister, who's not as pretty, is here. You should talk to her. <laughs> yes, and they, and, and Hmong moms and aunties are blunt, right? Yeah. They're just like, oh, she's like, tamada. But, yep. you know, you can go do your thing. Yep, so they sit two little <laughs> wooden benches out in front of the yep. house, and we're just sitting there. But the thing is, my like I can speak Hmong just fine to like get by in America. But like, when you're in Southeast Asia, that shit does not fly. And so Dude. I'm like, I don't know how to talk to you because she also her Thai is better than her Hmong. My oh, English yeah. is better than my Hmong. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just these two people trying to like flirt, but also she doesn't <laughs> know that I'm gay. And so. <laughs> It was like the most excruciating hour of my like, life. He was so nice to me. <laughs> he, we were like best friends. The thing she did know how to say in English, she's like, Trump? Like, yeah. she was asking what it's like to live in America because of Trump. Oh. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is a great yeah. one scene screenplay that you should write out. I mean, yeah. can you imagine? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Just think about all the cultural dynamics, right? And there's these two couples or these two young people who are trying to speak Hmong to each other. But this one speaks better English, the other one speaks better Thai. And then, you know, just the difference within the sexuality, too. So it's like, uh, what? You know? She was nice enough to walk me around to show me, like, the cows and, like, all the farm oh, animals. Because, yeah. um, you know, in Thailand, when the Hmong girl is showing you the cows, you know, you know, yeah. she's, you know, she's fully committed, you know? Exactly. That's, like, second base. <laughs> the water base. buffalo comes in, and, yeah. Water I buffalo went, is second base. Oh. If you take her to your house to eat. bases? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, chickens and pigs are first base, and yeah. third is uh, water buffalo, and you know, that's but, awesome. But to answer your question, I would say like 5.5, but if I do moan karaoke, I can, I can sing and read better than I can speak. So, yes, in some of your TikToks, I see you do like moan songs, and I'm like, yeah. dude, you're pretty good. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mom and Dad, where do you think his moan speaking is at? Oh, of, oh, snap, son. And that's public, too, dude. Like, everyone's going to hear this. I know. So mom says that of all the children, you're, you have the highest, you're speaking Hmong. But, oh, you read and write Hmong? Bro. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> well, when 10,000 right here, So, like, man. My, my auntie, um, she, when we were little, she would teach all of us cousins mm-hmm. Hmong writing and reading classes on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so every Saturday morning, all the cousins would go to her house and she would give us these little Hmong books and we would like yeah. learn all the tones and how to read and write. Um, and it's worked out well because I love karaoke. And so that's the only time I use it. Oh, look at that. You're like, you're like I'm in. Uh, well, exactly. that, you know, that's amazing. My Hmong, I think it's, I'm like at a seven You speak really good. No, dude, but here's the deal. So when I went to, uh, we, uh, we went to Laos and we filmed, a, you know, we filmed a show in Laos and I was up in the mountains. And when you're in the mountains with the Hmong people in the mountains, like those are like 
Like, they're legit, you know? There's not like, da 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 the airport. They don't say things like that, you know? Like, they're legit. And I got there, and I genuinely got scared because my, my, my little brother told me, because when he went to Thailand, he goes, dude, you actually don't know how good you are until you're in the moment where you're like, Nobody speaks English, you know? And I remember I got there and they thought I was Lao because mm-hmm. the group we were in was like Lao, Vietnamese, and then, you know, uh, and then there was like an, another, oh, and then there was like a white dude. But, and, and so they, they just thought I either was Lao or Vietnamese. So, you know, like, like, like around me all the time, you know, like the audience, and they were all just like gossiping about, you know, whatever, you know, that stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about. And, um, <laughs> And I remember I sat there and, uh, you know, we were in between takes and I was sitting there and I was like drinking some water and I, I looked at, you know, all the kids would come by and I'll go, hey, Yanzhong, Yanzhong to the kids and they're all like, whoo, and then they run away and, and one of the, um, one of the uh, aunties, you know, she looks at me and she goes, Mito, go hai luni naka papawa. And I'm like, I looked at her and I'm like, dai, go hai luni naka papawa. And she's like, whoa. And then it was like when that moment where all the like aunties that were sitting there were like, whoa. And like, bitch, don't to do you know. Um, and and you know what they said was like, we, we we don't have a son or we don't have you know a monk kid like like that looks like you, you know, because I was like a lot bigger than every one of them, you know. And they were all flabbergasted that I was Hmong and you know and I could speak Hmong. And then I got into the conversation and when we were filming the show, I was translating and I'm like, and it's one of those things where I remember I'm like sitting there and I'm translating along with the, you know like what the host is trying to say and we're you know we're with we're with some of the villagers and the elders and I'm like, in my mind I'm like holy crap, I'm actually better than I thought. Like in my mind, I was just, I got a little cocky. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually better. You know, it's like, it's like, you ever watch that uh, Jason Bourne movie where he's just like, he just like knows all these things that he yeah. doesn't know that he knows, you know? He goes, and, and I'm just like, how do I know how to say these words? You know, and it was just, it was just kind of like a f- survival, mm-hmm. right? It got to this verse survival where, where suddenly I just felt like, I know, I know how to say that. Or, I think I said that right in the right tone. Uh-huh. And I'm Hmong Dao too, so uh-huh. you know. And so some of the villagers were Hmong Jua. Uh-huh. And then so I was just like, oh no, they're totally good. I'm like, do I try to, because my mom's Hmong Jua. Uh-huh. So there's a, you know, in Hmong, there's two dialects. There's a, there's a white dialect and there's a blue dialect. And uh, it's kind of, you know, the equivalent of like America English and British English. You know, there's, there's a tone and you, there are a couple words you use that are different. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my mom is green or blue and my, my dad is white. And so we predominantly grew up with the white dialect, but my siblings, I'm, I can't do it. They go back and they can go back and forth. And so I was like, do I try to like push my Hmong Jua, which is nothing like zero. Yeah. And then I was like, no, 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 man, you're, you're winning right now. <laughs> and they were just so proud. Like, oh, I'm like, yeah, you know, in America, whatever. So thankfully they weren't, if they were gossiping about you, assuming that you didn't know what they were saying, that would have been like a different story. Dude. <laughs> And we almost had that because we were in this market for about an hour, right? Uh-huh. And these Yanyeche uh, that were there, they, they, it was like a big market and they were selling stuff. And we were setting up a eating scene, like a grilling eating scene. And they're like, Oi, you know, and they kept, they kept joking about that. They kept saying, oh, like, look, look, they have so much. Uh-huh. Like, maybe they'll let us eat some. Like, oh, and then it's like, and I turn around and I just said in Hmong, I'm like, and they like freaked out. They're like, me too, and I'm like, yeah, because we were in a Kamu village uh-huh. area, you know, and mm-hmm. that, and so, you know, it, I, I felt like that is my only thing where I felt proud 
of like your Hmong. Yes, like of my Hmong language. I'm like, yeah, I think I got it. Then the moment you get back here, and then a bunch of your uncles are talking, you try to talk to them in Hmong. Uh, did you bawa? We doing chipawa. And I'm like, you know what? In the villages and in the mountains of Laos, I did it. Okay. That's the only approval you need. Yeah, I'm like, I got the OG guys up here who doesn't even know what the word cell phone is, you know, and they love it. They said I was good, and I'm okay. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, so. Like randomly over the summer, I got really bored, so I started going on TikTok Live with the Hmong people in Thailand and Laos, <laughs> and that's like put my Hmong to the test because they don't know English, and all their viewers are like people who live in La- Thailand and Laos, um, and so they're always like so interested in like my Hmong skills, and so that's helped me practice just a little bit more. Do they think you're some kind of like hero here? You know? Well, they only at first they don't think I'm Hmong. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But that's been, that's been fun for me to like practice in that way, especially living in L.A. and like not having a lot of Hmong people yeah. to practice with. So. Yeah, so that was my next question, man. Like living in L.A., you know, it, there's not a lot of Hmong people that live in there. Like uh, for, for you, mm-hmm. how do you connect with Hmong people and how do you, you know, in a better, how do you keep your Hmongness in this vast different uh, culture there? Uh, socially, there's a different culture there, but also all these other Asian groups that are there. Honestly, uh, well, to kind of backtrack, like, because I lived in Chicago for six years, right? And I didn't have many Hmong friends there either because there weren't a lot of Hmong people there. So when I moved back here a couple years ago, it was kind of the first time in my adult life where I had Hmong friends. A lot of them are here. Um, That's actually. But I think, but then to like go from that to LA, it was this complete 180 where it's like, oh shoot, I have to like start over, not just with friends, but like seeking out community and Hmong people in a city where it's not like a bubble like the Twin Cities. Um, and there are a lot of Hmong people there, but we're all just scattered and like doing our own thing. But I think because we all are away from community, a lot of the Hmong friends I've met there are really eager to just connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, like, I enjoy cooking, not probably not as good as you and my mom, but like, for me, I love to cook and host dinners a lot for my Hmong friends in LA. So like last weekend, or a couple weekends ago, I had a an LA Hmong potluck at my apartment and it was like over 30 people in my little studio and everyone brought like papaya, nava, sticky rice, pork belly and it was so fun for like all these Hmong people in LA to meet each other um, and to, just to like eat, drink Hennessy, line dance, Teloso. Um, Hennessy? I don't do Hennessy anymore. Dude, we gotta change that, man. I know. <laughs> but like I think for me that's kind of how I've been able to connect with people yeah. there. It's like through hosting and like the Hmong hospitality that you find pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, I think what's, what's really interesting when you were saying that, what I, I took away from it is like Hmong people, no matter we, where we are around the world, if we find one or two, it's just so like, oh, like it's, it's like that refreshing, like when you're really thirsty, and that first sip, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing, you know? Well, my friends were like, you moved all the way to LA just to hang out with more Hmong people, but... But, <laughs> right, like, but that there's something about it, yeah. right? You know, where, where it's like we were always connected. And like when I lived in Chicago, I, would, I lived um, by the Vietnamese neighborhood. So I guess a lot of Hmong people would come to Chicago and they would want to go eat pho. Because mm-hmm. um, I guess you can't get that in the Twin Cities. But yeah. um, I would be walking around like to the train and I would always hear these Hmong tourists speaking Hmong. And so I would always run up to them and be like, oh, I'm Hmong too. And like talk to them. And that maybe it was a little weird back then, but like... No, no completely weird, bro. Yeah. Like, but they're it, walking, you're like, oh, good job, Hmong Literally. It's like, ah. uh, so like a few weeks ago... They're same, like, Chicago pizza. That's all I want. Deep dish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and same thing happened a few weeks ago in LA, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to play it cool and not go up to them. 
<laughs> did, did you go up to them? No. Oh, you should be like, oh, cup of hello mom. But like to your point, right? Like when you're somewhere where there aren't a lot of Hmong people and you hear it, it's just like that instant connection. And then yeah. they ask who your parents are, you find out you're related yeah. or like have yeah. beef with each other. Yeah. It's like, you know, for, 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 for our friends here who aren't Hmong, like when, when we do meet, it becomes this like, it's almost like I say kind of Game of Thrones where it's like, this is my father. Who is the son of this? Who is the son of that? You know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it, I, growing up as a Hmong kid, that's like you always had to remember like all these different lineage and history. And, you know, as you're doing that, it's like, you had to remember your family tree and who your grandpa was and and for us it was like what village they lived in and what you know and then oh it was no it's not that one but it's the other one with that one river that comes through and mm-hmm. i remember my dad would train us into that and <laughs> and and i remember they were talking uh you know and i would tell this to my you know mamika friends and my wife friends and they're like what like my dad's name is bill you know i tell them you know bill johnson yeah bill johnson <laughs> or you know sorry sorry if there's like a bill johnson out there uh but it, it, i would the best way I explain it now, and I'm like, it's like Game of Thrones. Like, you just, you, you have to know where the family tree is and everything. And I think that's very important. I mean, yeah. I mean, it happened tonight, too. Like, introducing some friends to my mom tonight before the event started. It's like, who's your dad? How are we related? Yeah. Um, I'm really bad at memorizing that stuff, so you already are, like, one-upping me on that. But it's true. Like, in our culture, that's really important. And I think that also ties back to, like, the sense of, like, familial duty and respect for the different generations that come before you, right? Yeah, and it's definitely like kind of in the in the way that our, our, our culture is set up is like like the un- uncles and aunts and saying and by saying uncle and aunt, you know, auntie uh, say uncle and aunties and, and what side of the family that's mm-hmm. from is that from the mom side or the dad side, you mm-hmm. know, and titles. Like I don't know if you how you grew up, but I grew up like you would never call an adult by their first name. Never. <laughs> never. Yeah, all right. And then you go to your wife's friend's house and they're yeah, like, and call like, me Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their mom's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm Sandra. And I'm like, and I'd be like, no, Mrs. Jones, I cannot do that. Like, even, even if I called you Sandra now, and like, even now today, as of almost, I'm 39 years old, and my, my, my buddy's dad is not Jim, it's Mr. Lamp. Yep. And it's, he's like, no, just call me Jim. And I'm like, I can still feel my mom like slapping me in the head. Like I don't like I, I can't do it. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And and I and I, there's a there's a part of it that we joke about that, but then there's a sense of we love I love that. You know? I mean it's like a sign of respect too, right? Yeah. And um and also like it can get tricky too if you call them like there's different terms for mm-hmm. auntie or uncle yep. depending on how old they are or like which side. And if you call them the wrong one, there's like I know stuff that comes with that too. Definitely too, and you know, and as monk kids, we we almost had to be like it was like it's like the Matrix, you know, when they see all this green. It's like you had to figure out like oh, from this side. To side. Okay, that's how I call them, you know. Exactly. And I've, I've watched my mom and dad do that with like uh, like monk, you know, like strangers or guests that they just meet. They quickly do. I call it like monk heritage math. They're like oh, okay, so you're with the okay, and then that's the uncle to the cousin. Oh, okay, and then that's the village. Yes. We remember that one thing with the water buffalo in 95. I get it. And they're all like, duh, 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 duh. It's like, okay, so we call you Dalho. And I'm like, okay. You know? That's Hmong Long Division. And that's yeah. why I'm not good at math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Philip's like, tell me what you want to be addressed as. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you yeah. know, one of the things is like growing up as a Hmong kid in, you know, kind of out there in Wisconsin, chasing this dream, figuring out your identity, mm-hmm. and then in the mix of everything too, if that, wasn't kind of complicated enough and everything is you're part of the LBGTQ community. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me about that story, you know, because I know yeah. that there's a lot of young Hmong people that are experiencing that or going through that. Mm-hmm. And I, 
I say, okay, I'm saying this with all due respect. I, th I think our community, our Hmong community, just doesn't have an area for that to like to, to, to you know what I'm saying? It's to tricky, talk about yeah. It. Yeah, and not, not because we're like not inclusive or whatever, it's just this is, you know, we're just so far behind some of these conversations. So I mean, to begin, me there isn't even like a Hmong word to yep. say like you're queer, right? Yep. And so, I mean, it starts with that and without having the language to name it, it's hard to grapple with the concept of what like being queer or LGBTQ is. Um, I mean, for me, I guess I had always known growing up and like, I was always hanging out with my girl cousins. Um, I loved to do like bandao. I loved like Hilary Duff and like female pop stars. Hilary like, Duff is one you go to? Oh yeah, I had like all her books, the movies, the CDs. Mandy Moore. Oh. Mm. I hey. wrote a paper on it in college. A minus. Oh my God. Yeah. She lives on my friend's street. No, no, I can't do this. I'm like one of these days, I need to see her walking her dog. Dude, take a picture and send it to me. Be completely oh, yeah. weird. Mandy um, Moore. And tell her that I wrote a paper on it in college. Okay, you know? you'll send it to me. I'll send yeah, it to her. I don't know. Okay, anyway, um, sorry, go ahead. But, but I think, so like I had always known, but you know like, um, you know, like grappling with being Hmong and like just being a kid in Wisconsin, I, it was just like, I'm just going to push it back. Like one day I'm going to actually wake up and be straight and like mm -hmm. magically be attracted to was women. Was there pressure on you, you think, from the community or anything? Or was that what no, just... No, because honestly, like, have, like I didn't really think much about like outside societal um, pressures because at that time too, like early 2000s, before same-sex marriage was legalized, it... Like, I, it wasn't just the Hmong community, but it was just in general, right? Like, in our cultural society of, there was still so much shame around being queer. And so, um, I knew that that was, at the time, perceived as wrong, but I didn't really tie it to being Hmong. Um, but I guess, you know, after journaling a lot and, like, going on Tumblr, like, really, like, my saving grace was being a teenager. I went on Tumblr, which is this social media platform at the time, and I met a lot of queer folks and like some of the first gay Hmong people I met were on there and I would message them like for advice and like questions on how they came out um, and it was the first time I really like connected with other gay Hmong people um, and I think so like I was around like high school early high school and that kind of gave me the courage to be more to like accept that I was gay um, and part of why I love film and TV a lot was I watched a lot of TV shows that had uh, queer characters and like coming out stories and that inspired me so much and I think it was one night I was watching an episode of Ugly Betty and there was like a character who had just come out to his family and that night I'm like you know what I can't sleep I'm gonna go wake up wake up my parents and come out to them um, because were you they, know they're like can't this wait till the morning you're like wake up wake up right but like I think when people come out it's easier to come out to friends um, than your yep. family but I was like my parents are gonna be the t hardest people to ever come out to I'm just gonna rip that band-aid off because um, sometimes I'm like crazy that way. So I pull them out of bed and I'm like, hey, like I have something to tell you. Sit them down at the, the kitchen table and I'm just like, hey, like I'm gay. Um, and my dad like gave me a hug right away. My mom like took some time to digest and I think immediately she was like, we need to get you like a therapy dog. And to this day, I never got my corgi, but... Um, <laughs> You're still, mom, still waiting for the dog. <laughs> yeah. Just throw but, it like, out there. But I think... To the point about Hmong culture, I think, uh, like, my parents are, like, well-connected in our family, in our community, and I think they were more afraid of what, uh, like, Hmong people would say about me being gay, and so I guess their way of protecting me was to be like, hey, you have two more years before college, like, uh, maybe just wait before coming out more broadly. Um, so, like, I didn't even tell my brothers, but I'm sure they weren't surprised, given that 
when I was a kid, I would make my older brother uh, go to Walmart and like I would give him like money and he would buy me all of the teen magazines so that people wouldn't think I was gay. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure he knew. That's I'm allyship. Sorry, I'm sorry. Like that is, you're so strategic. Like you thought three steps ahead. You're like, okay. I'm like, here's my Hillary Duff CD. Go pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't care what they think about you, but me that matters. Yeah. But so, I might not kick the soccer ball better than you, but I'm smarter than you. I'll Jedi mind trick you. Exactly. Yeah. So like I moved away to Chicago, went to college, and that was really where I like met other queer folks. I like was dating my ex then, and it was my sophomore year of college, and I was like very. Like, just, like, very gay, like, rainbow-waving. Um, so I came back for Thanksgiving, and my parents were like, you know what, I think now is the right time to come out to all our relatives. And so, basically, my parents, um, like, invited our closest, like, aunts, uncles, and cousins over for lunch. But they didn't tell them why, so they were like, come over to our house for lunch. But it's like a typical Hmong thing, just, like, come over and let them all, you know? Well, yeah. the thing they did say was, they're like, there's been a change in our family, and oh. we'll explain. <laughs> Dramatic. So everyone, <laughs> you're like, mom, I'm still alive. Like yeah. I'm here. <laughs> like, so everyone shows up, and like in our basement, they had set up this long ass table. I know, like the Hmong way of like, yeah, yeah like like Shalana, you know, like you know. You're and right. there was so much tension because I yeah. guess people thought like someone was either dying of cancer or my parents were getting divorced. Right. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. So like my like you know like every dad does they like greet the table. So my yep. dad was like, thank you so much for coming. We yep. appreciate you. But I guess he's like a man of few words. So he just like looked over at me. And I was like, oh shit, this is like <laughs> my moment. You're like, wait, wait, was that my intro? <laughs> there was not even an intro. Yeah. So I like told everyone that I was yeah. gay. Um, and uh, I, I mean, that was like the scariest thing I had done up to that point. Um, but like every single one of my relatives, I, there was, this was not even planned, but they like went around the table, took over an hour, and they each like voiced their love and support for me, yeah. even if they didn't like fully understand what being queer was. But um, I think for me that was like a turning point in my life because when I, w when I had gone off to college, I was like, I can't be Hmong and gay at the same time. Mm. Like, I have to just fully immerse myself into finding gay community because like Hmong people don't accept that, right? Mm. And it was kind of like calling my soul back home or like my yeah. spirit back home. Um, and it meant a lot that my parents would even do that because even if they didn't fully understand what having, having a gay son was like, they knew that it was important for us to come out to everyone as a family because, you know, when people talk, they don't fully understand what being queer is. And so to my parents, they were like, for the respect of the family and so that they can respect you, let's come out together as a family. That way they're not gonna like gossip or talk down on you um, through the grapevine. Um, and so after that, I was like coming around to family more. It felt like I could fully be myself and, you know, bring whoever I was dating to like family functions, um, take my cousins to the gay bars, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, so that was like my coming out journey. And it like, at times it was lonely, but I was thankful enough to have Hmong parents who, even if they didn't fully understand, they understood that at the end of the day, you have to like stand by your child. Um, and so, yeah, I'm always like grateful for that. Do you know, yes. <laughs> I think what's so cool, bro, is like, while you're telling that story, it, it is the most, and it sounds weird saying this, but it is the most Hmong thing that could happen. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Where it yeah. was like that fear, you're like, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm away in Chicago, I'm like six hours away, mm -hmm. I can do what 
I can do what I want, what I feel free to do, but there's something in your soul, right? Mm -hmm. It's still saying that it's, it's not right. Like, yeah. like this, this is not really me. This is, mm -hmm. this is me trying to find an escape yep. from trying to be really me. And then mm -hmm. there's that calling yeah. that brings you back. And, and, and I love that because I know that feeling too. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I know where it's like, went to college fully inverse, in, in, you know, into the Mikabo. I don't know if I really tell people this, but I never wanted to cook mung food. I hated mung food. I, I hated so much that even the idea of like, oh yeah, like do you know how to make an egg roll? I'd be like, no, no, whatever, you know? Like I hated mung food so much that I, like when I started first cooking, I cooked more Mexican food, mm. you know? And I cooked more Middle Eastern food. And it was so funny because I worked at this one place where I was cooking and people kept thinking, like is the dude Mexican or Middle Eastern? We don't understand. <laughs> You know, they didn't realize I was like, because yeah. I, I did not want anybody to know because for me, I was like, this is like just shame, you know? Mm -hmm. But you go there, you come back, and the way that, like, for those who aren't Hmong and don't understand, the way that you set up these Hmong parties, it is so ingrained in our souls of how they go, right? Um, I, my, my brother and I, we were, uh, one of my brothers, we, were, we had this party for my brother-in-law, and, and uh, you know, and, and all the friends, you know, this is all just like young people. But like everybody went around and gave a little speech. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're like. Food's getting cold. Yeah. And, and the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, we're just like our parents, you know? And the kids are like, all the kids are like, come on. And everyone had their little things that they wanted to say to honor them. And, and that, that's so amazing because I would have never thought that your parents, as your parents, mom and dad, protecting their son. Mm goes, no, we're, we're, we're doing this together. So if, so if any of the relatives or anybody's coming at him, he's coming at all of us. Yeah. And that, dude, is the core of what it means to be Hmong, you know? Yeah. That we are never alone, mm -hmm. no matter where we go, even though when we're so far away and we feel alone, mm -hmm. that we can always find our way back home. And yeah. dude, like, to me, that's like, listening to that goes, oh, dude, that's <laughs> exactly, I think that's what we want our young people to hear. That's what we want Hmong kids, Hmong people to hear right now. It's like, mm -hmm. you're never alone wherever you are. Like, your, your heart has this thing and this string, and you're going to find your way home. Yeah, and I mean, even, um, like, Win Vang, the Hmong singer from Laos, I mean, when he came here on tour a few months ago and, like, was publicly outed, I remember my mom mentioning something like, if that was my son, I'm going to go throw hands at whoever did this. <laughs> Um, <laughs> like mama bear, don't poke mama bear, yeah. right? But I also think like, you know, as Hmong, as queer Hmong people, like even if you're like, when your parents don't understand it, it can get really easy to grow into the sense of resentment being like, why can't my parents just like get with the times and understand what being gay is like? And I fell into that for so long because my mom and I would butt head so much, right? But I think when you're like the gay child, you almost have to give your parents a little bit of grace and be like, especially like they didn't grow up here, they didn't speak English as their first language. So it's like, they're still wrapping their minds around what it's like. They're still grieving this picture of what they had expected for me all their lives, right? Um, and so it's like a two-way street. You almost have to kind of like meet them in the middle and not rush their process of understanding queerness and vice versa. Uh, and so I think it took years for that, but um, here we are. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's amazing here. And I'm so glad you say that because that's kind of truly what I believe too, mm -hmm. is like if you, you take a moment and we pause and we, we think about our parents and our grandparents and what they had to go through to get here. And I talk about it all the time because I, I constantly put it in front of me to remind myself, you know? So like from the cooking world, like, mm -hmm. like for me, like one of the big things was like this. It's like, my dad didn't want me to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just be like, why, why would you do that? He's like, cause that's hard work. 
that, that it's, there's ache in your bones, you're tired, you know? And, and dad would always be like, that's what I do, so you don't have to. Like, I didn't, I don't do this, you know, I don't break my body with my work and I do so that you can, you know, go back to it. Like, I want you to go forward. So, so they see what they do as like, you know, like digressing, you know, mm -hmm. like, like labor, hard labor work, right? right. And, and that's, cause that's all they understand. Mm -hmm. You know what you know, yep. you know? And then, and then to be, I think like one of a very special moment uh, which I, I guess I hold really close to me is my we did it we did this event during AAPI month and the lieutenant governor came by and she gave this little award and she you know she talked about you know how you know hey like you know what you guys are doing here is you know going past the state into the the, the in the country and people are un, you know and and I remember my dad later because he was here for that I remember my dad said something to my mom and my mom told me later because he always like like dad always says it to mom and then mom will tell you and then I'm like okay you know but she's he, my dad said she's like I I saw today my son um, was speaking in front of the leaders mm -hmm. and they were listening to him and and he's like he said something like I, I what do you say he said I I feel really bad because I didn't know that's what he was doing mm -hmm. and my mom started crying she said we would we just thought you cooked you mm -hmm. know and and it was like one of those moments where it hits me where I'm like, yeah, like, when I was always angry, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know how you get angry, you're like, mm -hmm. frick, mom, dad, why don't you just understand, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, when, when you're always angry like right. that, you lose that space for grace, yep. you know, and it's just resentment, it's anger, and that builds on, like, you know, like, anger builds on anger. Mm -hmm. But when you give that little space for grace, mm -hmm. you know, you get a little space to be like, hey, they don't understand this because this was nothing in their realm of understanding yeah and dad always has this line where he says when, when we're in america and as you're growing up he says he would say to us as kids growing up as we're going to school and everything he's saying you are now becoming the teacher and i am the pupil mm -hmm. so you will have to come back and teach me mm -hmm. and it was like the greatest thing it was the most humbling thing that like that uh man among dad has ever said to me right you know, to have that space. You can't have like all the accolades, recognition, but like when your parents truly see you yes. for your work, uh, that like means a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like for me, like, I don't have to answer that question. It's like, is my mom and dad proud of me? You know, but when there's that, that aha click moment, you know, for mm -hmm. me, it's like, and, and I remember after that, it's like, I just, I felt unstoppable. Not because mm -hmm. like, I think I'm great. I felt unstoppable because I know who has my back. That's like one of the greatest things ever because yeah. I've seen the stuff they've gone through mm -hmm. and they made it. And it's just like, yep, that's, that's who has my back. Those mm -hmm. are the people that are for me and supporting me. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so special, dude, to have your mom and dad bring you to the family and say, hey, if anything needs to be said here and you want to say something, Philippe, mm -hmm. you're going to have to go through us first. And I, dude, like, so special because not a lot of Hmong kids have that, dude, right. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I know that's not the case for everyone, so I was, like, always very grateful for that. And I think, kind of to your story, too, it's like, yeah, you do want your parents' approval, but it also is a question, like, were all their sacrifices and their journeys to coming here worth it, right? Um, and you know the Asian stereotype of being a doctor, yep. going to law, all of that stuff. And so, like, I mean, pursuing writing, pursuing cooking, that's not like those stereotypical stereotypes. It's not the top three, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, like, well, my question for you, too, with cooking is, like, you know, in our culture, when you go to Hmong functions, it's always, like, the Hmong women in the kitchen, right, preparing, 
cooking while the Hmong men sit at the table and eat first or like socialize. And so like for you, when you like got into your love of cooking and really pursued it as a career, did not just your parents, but did like Hmong people say like, what's this Hmong man like doing in the kitchen, right? Did yeah. you ever face any of that? I don't know if I faced it publicly, but I think that there was a there was a little guilt inside of me uh, because I, I didn't have you know like the 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 top three career you know what I'm talking about like the top three I didn't do those and but it it was I always saw like cooking as a spot for like uh, you know uh, like it was one hour like the like the slaves or, or or the servants would do you know and I always just felt I've always I felt a little ashamed you know because it was just like. Yeah, those are the guys who didn't study hard. Those are the guys who didn't get into grad school. Those, and they end up having to do some kind of labor job. And I, I, for a while, growing up, I just accepted it. I'm like, I don't know how to put numbers together, so that's what I'm doing, you know? And so that was kind of my mentality. I, I, I think that there was a shift in the way that culturally we looked at food, right? And we looked at people making food. So, uh, but for, for me, there was, there was always that, and, and I, I hated this because, again, I was raised with parents who, like, my, my dad was like, this is what a Hmong man does, mm -hmm. you know? And it was, there was, it was about humility. It was about servanthood. It was about loving the people around you, you know? Like, I, I was a big kid. My sister's, like, was a lot, like, we only had one sister. So I was, like, a bigger kid. And I remember he would take us and he would look me in the eye and goes, you're bigger than your sister, so no matter where you go in life, you will always protect her and you'll always help her, mm -hmm. you know? And, like, he instilled that in us. So I, I always had this mentality of, like, I didn't, I didn't let Hmong gossip go like this is what man do and this is what woman do and you know I I didn't I I didn't have that because again I had a r really good mom and dad who said we have these different roles we do but it's not about one role is better than the other yeah. you know like we are we are created equally but we just have different roles mm -hmm. and so I didn't feel that but the, what I did feel was like. I, I was ashamed to explain to people that, oh yeah, what does he do? Oh, he cooks, you know? And so it's just like, well, yeah, I do, but, you know? So, so there was the complexity on it. And again, that's why I think it was so special when, you know, when I heard dad and mom talk about like, oh, we realize what you do now and it's beyond like actually just doing just food. Cooking. Yeah, and so, but, it, but you always have that one or two uncle, you know, he just, they just think they know a little bit more, and so they'll say things. But I, I would always be able to brush it off. But right. I, I know that you know, there was, there's a sense of, oh, you're, I mean, what, what's, the, what's the thing at church? Uh, my mom would get stopped at church by the ladies and say, oh, your son is the, the Facebook chef guy, you know? Or, and I'm like, I don't know if like, I want that title. Or they would say the YouTube, like the YouTube guy. Yeah, you know? yeah. They would say that my mom and dad. And, and I, I, I laugh about it, but it's, it's kind of like, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll take YouTube guy, you yeah. know, but yeah, I mean, there's to me, there's always still that little boy inside that mm -hmm. says, no, no, but look, I, I'm like, I'm, I, that's not really what I do. You yeah. Know? But yeah, I still deal with that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the cool thing about watching your work is like, like you said, it's more than food. It's storytelling, weaving your culture in and like at the heart of Hmong people, it's community and like it really takes a village to do whatever you're doing. So I think like with a state fair, first of all, congrats on that. <laughs> oh, but thanks, man. Like seeing like your mom, your aunties, the Hmong women that were highlighted and like helping you, I'm like, they're also getting the recognition too. And I think that's like, so what makes food and like Hmong food so special is that like, it takes a whole village to prepare and everyone gets to like, enjoy the benefits of that and sit at the table. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was like really cool. Yeah, with, with the state fair too. And I don't think a lot of people really saw the behind the scenes, but I mean, they went hard, like three months before they would just make all these galapal, it was a thousand a day 
three days a week, nonstop, 12-hour shifts. And they were downstairs, right in this building, downstairs, just pumping them out, right? Mm -hmm. And all our staff, all our chefs that were here, they saw that work, you know? It was like, boom, and it was like clockwork. They were just go, go. And, and even when we felt like, when we calculated, and said, oh shoot, we don't have enough, Wild Affair started, like, so it, it's really interesting, because when I give the number out, people go, whoa, that's crazy, I never would imagine. When I told my mom that this is the number we have to hit, that, that we have to hit 18,000, and then we said oh, we might have to throw another 5,000 with, uh, with the 24-hour notice, she didn't blink. She didn't, she didn't go, well, I don't know. It was like, like, she literally was like, put us back in. Tell us, like, I'm gonna call. Like, she called all the ladies from church and said, we're going back. In 24 hours, there was a turn, and they were all back here, and it looked like they were just back. Uh -huh. And I don't think people understand that, right? Because I got furious when, okay, so here's the deal. If you have like a camera now and you walk around, apparently you're a food influencer. <laughs> and so we had a couple people who were, maybe they were Mika people or whatever, but they had the bow and then they would, they would rate it, right? It's Galapau, they would rate it. And they'd be like, oh, you know, it's like a five out of 10. It's too doughy, like there's no, and I'm like, Bro, first of all, you and your wife have never had a galapao before. So, like, how do you have, you know, a place to judge it? Secondly, like, you do not say that. And then, so, our, our social media person and our communication person, like, I'm, like, I'm about to, like, type. I'm, like, I have, like, I'm, like, I'm about to pounce on these people. And, like, just, like, and, and I'm one of those people. I'm petty. So that if Same. you say something about my Same. mom, like, like, I'm, like, oh, dude, like, I'm about to start a burner account. And I'm going to go real petty on you. And, and I, I think that our, our communication specialist, our director, uh, she was like, hey, I'm going to close your account now. And I'm going to close the, all the accounts that you have. And you can't, I don't want you to, I'm like, but, but I'm like, but Lauren, like, you know, they poked the bear. I'm ready. And that was just for me, was just this defense where it's like, you don't know the, the hours that were put in. You don't know the labor that was put into this. You don't know the work that was put into this, yeah. you know. But one of the most amazing things is on the last day of the state fair, it's Minnesota Hmong Day, right? Mm. So they did this whole thing and they had a stage and they asked, like, hey, yeah, we would love to come up for you to come and, you know, be honored. And, and, and a few days before, at the state fair, they have this award called the Best Of. And so all the vendors, there's 300 some vendors in the state fair and everybody vote, uh, all, the, all the people, all the leaders from the state fair of executives, they vote of which 12 are the best vendors and and we that's this year we got one you know for you know for our thing and so, no, no. so it's it's really no, no 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 this this has nothing to do with me it's really thank you thank you it's really funny because like when i told my mom and my taipo this the first thing they said was good job son and i'm like no that's you guys like uh -huh. like even in that moment they still did not take any credit so for minister among day we, we, I took them to the stage, and it, you know, and there's all these Hmong people. And let me tell you, they're wearing the Union Hmong Kitchen shirt, oh, yeah. and there was like nine aunties following me through the state fair, right? And so, and my mom, and it's just like all these like little like Hmong grandmas and moms following me. And we got there, and let me tell you, it was like having like I don't know some boy band group at a concert. People were coming up for pictures with them. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Like they got stopped by other moms and other people that have seen this on social media and they all were like, come here, come here, let's take pictures. Mm -hmm. And they all wanted to be around them. Wow. And in that moment, I'm like, yes. Like for me, mm -hmm. that is the most important thing. Yeah. Like here is a mom who for 40, almost 40 years who have fought for me, defended me, who have mm -hmm. taken care of me, you know, when I was well, when I was sick, who would always like in college, I remember my first week of college, I had a cold and they 
mom couldn't sleep, so the next morning at seven or six in the morning, got in the car with dad, drove three hours just to bring me um, cold medicine, mm. which I could have gone to Walgreens where there was my first week of college. And mm. on the phone, I was talking to her, and I was congested a little bit. And that night, she, dad was like, she couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. She like the next morning, she like got all the cold medicine, drove three hours down just to drop it off in front of my dorm, and then they drove back home. My parents did that too. Yeah, yeah. right. Like there's yeah. you. There's something about that that yeah. sticks to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And then here, here she is, like mom and her little band of, you know, of, of Galabao makers, <laughs> surrounded by all these Hmong people. Blackpink could never. I mean, yeah. they were the Hmong Blackpink right there. Yeah, and, and they were surrounded, and they just want pictures with them. They just wanted to be by them. You know, mm -hmm. they wanted to be by the people who had the hands who made this. Mm -hmm. And even like our uh, CFO, Jeff, you know, he's, he's just a white dude. But every time everybody would come through and they would be like, well, how do you pronounce that? Jeff would make them make sure that they said Galabao before they could buy it. You know, and so I'm like, thank you, Jeff, you know, because yeah. people would be like, uh. And that's why for us, it's very important that in our menus, we put Hmong words in there, even though if the word is guy, you know, which means meat, you know, or, or kotsa, like we call our, you know, we call our kotsa, kotsa, like, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, so, so for us, it was like, we, this isn't just something we do that's like a, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for the summer so we can make money. No, this is, this is part of who we are, you know. And I, it, it, so much in your story, I see that. Yeah. So much in everything you do, I see that. And, and the thing that blows me away about you is that you have this sense of fearless, fearlessness <laughs> that I, I really admire because yeah. it's like, man, he just went. You know, like you just said, okay, this is where I'm going. I got this job here on Netflix in LA. I'm going. You know, yeah. well, most people will go, okay, well, okay, do I have family around? Because that's the Hmong thing, right? Do we have family around? Mm -hmm. So if something happens, we can help with the family, or do we know people around, or is there like a cousin that you'll live with, and then, right. you know, and then move on, but yeah. I think one thing, well, one thing that helped for me too is like, whether you're Hmong or not, when you're part of the LGBTQ community, a lot of it is like finding your own chosen family, mm -hmm. and like making your friends your family. Uh, and so, I mean, I had always experienced doing that in Chicago, moving to Minnesota. Um, and so like moving to LA, it's like, I don't have actual family around here, but I can always like find Hmong people and kind of bring them together and make it feel that way. Like we had our own Hmong New Year celebration at my friend's house there. I and she, <laughs> she, had her, she had her mom uh, FaceTime in and her mom is a shaman. So her mom uh, did hoopli for each one of the Hmong friends. Dude, um, who bleeds digitally? Dude, that's yeah. the next generation right there, bro. Forget about Cameo. You can like pay for a shaman <laughs> to do that for you. That's an app idea. That's a Hmong app idea. Up, oh, up, oh, nope. stamp, stamp. Let's talk after. Yeah, we can yeah, develop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Software engineer. We, you know. And even like when I lived here, like my Hmong friends, and like a lot of us are uh, queer and like doing traditional Hmong things, but like putting our own spin to it, right? So I think for me, like tradition is always really important to me, but it's like when you're also gay or like when you're growing up in a newer generation, how do you kind of translate these kinds of traditions and values and like let go of the ones that don't really serve you? Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but like no, to me, that's always been really important. It makes complete sense because that's exactly what being Hmong is about. Yeah. It's about the two cultures, right? Like what, how we get Hmonglish. Think about that, right? Mm -hmm. There's this idea that we can take, we can be 100% Hmong, we can be 100% American, and as it clashes, it, I shouldn't say clash, as it connects together, it creates this beautiful third culture. Mm -hmm. You know, and, 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 and in, in, the, in the things that you know that this is, to, I'm 100% Hmong and I'm 100% gay. I'm 100% Hmong and I'm 100% American. Mm. And as that comes together, you yeah. know, and, and say, yeah, this is, this is, this is great. And there's, some, there's something beautiful that you know, comes from it. Mm. And our, our parents, 
would want us to do this so that we get to keep carrying our heritage and our lineage forward, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what you're doing, dude. And, oh, and yeah. that's why, like, you're one of those that I creep on and TikTok a lot <laughs> to watch, like, some of the stuff you do. First of all, it's, like, super artsy. And I'm trying to figure it out. So then, like, because we have, like, really young millennial, uh, Gen Z kids that work here. So I'm like, okay, I got to be, like, the cool guy, right? And sometimes I'm not because I... The other day, I tried to say the word lit, and I guess I put it in the wrong context. So I was like, oh, okay. And I, right away, I stopped myself, like, oh, what are you doing? And uh -huh. so uh, but th th that was me the other day, and it felt really bad. And I apologized. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that word. Um, but on top of that, like, to see what you're doing here, man, and at such a young age and with such a clear mind, like, it is so amazing. And so I try. I mean, Kind of backtrack to your point of like your parents seeing, finally understanding what you do. I think for me, last year, I, when I did my first red carpet, I had just moved to LA, I buzzed all my hair off, I bleached it blonde. And so I, like to, I sent a photo of myself on the red carpet to my family. And I think my mom was like, I'm so proud of you, but why is your hair blonde? <laughs> and she was like, she was like, people aren't going to know your mom. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing. She's like, what? Yeah. But now it's red, so. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. Okay, my last question to you, okay? Your mom being an amazing cook, what for you when you get back home, right? You fly 3,000 miles, you get back home. What, f is there a request for a certain meal, a certain dish? It's like, go to and you sit down and it's right in front of you. I feel like I don't usually request, but my favorite dish that she did make the night or the morning I flew back, um, it's the boiled chicken with the chow, like the, oh. when you like give birth and you have to eat the oh, chicken with soup. The herbs? Oh. Like I obviously never give birth, but, um, well. but like growing up, that was always my favorite. Uh, and so I, like that with like the rice and the soup and then like some mung pepper. Yeah. Dude, yeah. I, I, that's So okay. I'm like, if you're a mung woman and you just gave birth, but you don't want to finish your soup, you can yeah. give it to me. <laughs> Philippe's like, uh, and you can send it to at Philippe. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, dude, it, it's so great to get to know you better. It, it's amazing to hear your story. I think that there are so many listeners that, or you know, that people couldn't be here to hear that. Dude, I think that it's, it's so incredible. And, and we love doing this because one of the, the things that I've learned is the Hmong language first started out as an oral language, right? So what we would do is we just tell stories. We'd tell Dunning, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, it, and these stories would be passed from one generation to one generation. And our histories are passed mm -hmm. from one generation to one generation. And now as we're in America, we have these great recording devices and we have these, you know, technology where we can tell our story and it's recorded and many generations you know from now can come back and still listen to it yeah and that's why for us it's really important to record these things and that's why for us it's really important to you know make sure that we have all these different voices and story and so man i thanks so thank much thank you so man, much no i appreciate thank it you. Yep. thank you everyone too at this point in the program we had a woman from the audience ask a question her children are both Hmong and white and she wanted to know how to help them create their own identity and forge their own path. That's a good question. Um, I mean, clearly I don't have children, but I feel like, I mean, I feel like when you, kind of what we were saying about like the Hmong language, right? I feel there are so many ways that you can dictate how Hmong someone is um, by like language or like um, if they can read and write in Hmong or like, uh, or like their knowledge of their history. And I don't think, I feel like when you kind of set these parameters around your cultural identity, that discourages someone from like exploring more of that identity. I would say like 
for me, like I love Hmong music. I love to just like watch Hmong YouTubers or like food on online and like finding the parts of that culture that you can like really grasp onto and help your understanding of your identity versus like like setting the parameters around like measuring how Hmong someone is, right? I don't know if that really answers the question, but um, I think yeah, I think when it comes to like allowing someone to really flourish in their cultural identity, it's like less of markers and more just like letting them um, discover like the richness of it all and like see what they really gravitate towards. Yeah, I, I think for, I mean, definitely going off of that, it's one of the things I really learned is that uh, children love stories and they, 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 they're connected to stories. That's why like my dad's a storyteller. When we were kids growing up, he told us stories all the time. Dunning, you know, he would make, you know, he would, these legends, he would, you know, make up these little stories and, and that's how we were so captivated by it. And I, I think that it's about telling the story, you know, if, if, if you know, you know, Bridget, with, with your kids, you know, being uh, Hmong and being Mika, like making sure that both sides of their heritage is loved and cherished, you know? For example, my, my little nephew, he's not a little one, he was like 17. Uh, he, they live in Wisconsin, but every year they, uh, they are at the end of this, they come out and they work at um, the state fair with us, right? And you know he's a really a real cool kid. He, he's really smart, real cool kid. He's 17. He's gonna go to. He'll be a senior. He'll go to college. And I, I was driving back from the state fair. By the way, okay, there's a lot of misconception about what I do. So when we were driving back, I, we were like in my truck. I have a truck, you know. And he's like, "Hey, uncle, yeah, is this the only car you have?" And I'm like, "What? Yeah, this is the only car I have." And he goes, "Well, you're on TV and stuff. Like, I thought you had like a Tesla and a Porsche, also." And I'm like. <laughs> Who's giving you these ideas? He goes, I thought you had like three or four cars. Like, isn't that what people on TV do? And I'm like, first off, no, not me. Anyways, that's, that was like started the conversation I had with him. And I had to explain to him like, no, that I, I only have one car. Insurance is too high. Um, but it, I, I was talking to Ty and he was like, I, I started talking. I'm like, hey, and I was talking about my father and, you know, his grandpa. And I said, hey, we were talking about something. And he's like, yeah, I just sometimes I just don't know what to talk to grandpa about, you know? He just, you know? And then Titus, like, his Hmong is not that good, too, right? And when I say not that good, I mean, love you, Titus, but you don't speak Hmong. So, you know, um, his, his, his Hmong is the, 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 like, if mom says something to him and he says, wants to say yes, he'll say, oh, oh, you know? Uh, which is Hmong for yes. Um, and, and so I said, you know, I'm like, hey, Ty, did you, because, because grandpa and grandma helped like raise them, you know, because my siblings were in grad school and so they helped raise them. And I said, did you, did you know that, did you know that grandpa fought in this war? And I, and I started explaining the war. And I said, hey, do you know that grandpa's a hero and he's like a war hero and he doesn't talk about it. And he's like, and seriously, his eyes opened up to me. We're driving, we're on 61 going north. And he goes, what? I never knew that. And I go, yeah, do you know that sometimes when grandpa goes around and his, like, he gets to talk to his old war buddies and, and, when, you, and when you realize that these are men who are here in America because grandpa saved their life back in Laos because he fought in this war for America and he was, he was just so captivated. And he's like, wait, that's my grandpa? I'm like, yeah. And in that moment, he was like, Oh, like I'm, and he started talking to me. He goes, "Wow, like I never knew that about like me being a Hmong kid, to have a to have a grandfather, who is this hero, who's this BA dude, right? But then he raised you. He's a part of raising you, you know. 
He took care of you. And remember in the mornings when you were you guys were young and you you know in kindergarten, he would he would make sure that there's eggs and sausage for you and make sure you had breakfast before you go to school. Like that guy, that guy has this incredible story. Your grandpa has this incredible story. It was the same thing that when he was working in the in in our in the station, right in the um, in the uh, in our in, in the fair, and and he was the guy, he was the kid who he was the person who was steaming all the all the galapals in the steamer. And I looked at him. I'm like, hey, bro, check this out. I'm like, you know that galapal is made by grandma. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kid's eating this galapal his whole life, right? He's 17. I'm like, for 17 years. You've eaten that galapao since ever since you were born. You've been eating that. It, 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 he, there's pictures of him, baby pictures. He's like gnawing on it, right? You know, we've seen that for monk kids. I said, for 17 years you've eaten that. You know what it tastes like. You know what it feels like. You know what it should, you know, all of that. You, what it should taste like, what it feels like. And you know when you pull it out and you see how it is, you know that. I'm like, of all the people that are working at the station here, None of them, they had like a few weeks to understand that. You know that. And so I go, so when you pull it out, you got to trust your instinct. You gotta trust your instinct because for 17 years you've been eating this. And I, I remember I was like saying, laying that to him, and he was working in that steaming station. It's a really hard station, you know. And and at first he would like put the temperature in. He'd be like, "Okay, Uncle, is this ready yet?" And I'm like, "No, no, no, dude, I believe you." Like, and in that moment I realized that he took pride of his mongness. And it wasn't like, "Okay, like, come on, Titus, you're mong, you should know better." No, 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 it wasn't that. It was, you know what, Titus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you some cookie crumbs here. I'm gonna let you explore that. And I have faith that you're gonna come back. Just like with what you were ta- talking about, being in Chicago, getting into the LBGT community and all that stuff. But there was a part of you that says, I have to come back because there's a part of me that's wrong. And I, I tell you, Bridget, like, if you lay out those crumbs for your children, I guarantee you they will go, they will be curious because kids are curious. And they're gonna do it, and I guarantee you they're gonna come back. You know, regardless of what side they want to be, because they can be both. Because this is what America is built on—the idea that there's this convergence of beautiful cultures that happen. And so, I'm not a parent, but I, but I would say this is as the kid who ran from home, I ran so far, so deep that I didn't think that mom and dad ever wanted me anymore. What I realized is that the harder I run, the more of that mong, that family, that mom and dad, that mongness just pulled me back harder. And like, I'm the kid who was more excited about cooking, cooking Mexican food and Middle Eastern food, and now my whole life is about Hmong food and telling our story and telling our family story about this. 20 years ago, if you told me I'd be doing this, I would laugh at you. I'm like, are you kidding me? No way. Like, like I feel cringy when I talk about Hmong food. But now I cannot not talk about, you know, uh, you know, I cannot not talk about, you know, braised mustard green with pork. It's the most simple dish ever. There's like four ingredients and one of them is water, you know? <laughs> but for all you monk kids out there, man, when we eat that, there's something in our soul that revives our soul, you know? And I love that. I love that with monk kids, all my nieces and nephews, when they, that's all they eat. You know, that's all they want. Like, you know, you know, it's like water and rice and uh, grilled pork and with a local tzal. And so, yeah, so I, I, I truly believe that if we allow our, our children to be curious and we lay out some crumb, they will go and they will find what they're looking for. In essence, that, you know, they'll come back. So well put. <laughs> all right, brothers. Let's put.